Um, yeah, Joel's explained IDOP, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, IDOP 23. And this is the big day for us, not just in Open Doors, but for organisations around the world that support Christians who are persecuted. Obviously, year-round, we're working with the persecuted church, but today is a day where internationally we come together, and churches around the world will be praying today for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. You'll see on your chairs, if you haven't sat on them, little booklets called the Top 50. It's our World Watch List, and it's a list of 50 countries in the world where there is a high price to pay to be a Christian. It's a dangerous place to be a Christian. There is discrimination, there is persecution. Every year, Open Doors commissions that report, and that's the, the 2023 report. Every year, we present it to Parliament, we present it to the Assembly in Cardiff, we present it to the EU and to the UN to try and be a voice for the voiceless, to speak out for those Christians who can't speak out for themselves because of the situations that they're in. And this evening, um, Evangelical Alliance are organizing uh, an online prayer meeting together with Open Doors and our sister organizations. You may have heard of Release or CSW, Christian Solidarity Worldwide. We're all coming together for an hour's prayer meeting and information. And it's very easy to sign up if you want to. Just, just type in International Day of Prayer and I'm sure it'll come up. Um, and that's an opportunity this year for us to hear about Christians in Nigeria and Christians in Nicaragua and Christians who have been imprisoned for their faith and we'll be specifically focusing on them. Well, I've worked, well, I've supported Open Doors now for almost exactly 50 years. I know I don't look that old either, do I, Joel? But if I was Joel's landlady 20 years ago, don't guess. But I first came across Open Doors when I was a student in Manchester and Brother Andrew... God's smuggler, who some of you may have heard of, came to speak. And I was sitting there, quite a new Christian at the time. And it was almost as if God put his finger on me and said, that's for you. I want you to speak out for, to care for, to support my children in places in the world where they need help, where they need support. And Brother Andrew had started by smuggling Bibles across the Iron Curtain, for those of you who are old enough to remember the Iron Curtain. Um, to people who didn't have Bibles. And so he started smuggling. He looked around his study at all the Bibles he got around, and I've got a few as well. And he said, this isn't right. I have so many. They only have one to share for the whole church. And that made me really think, do I really value the Bible that I have? How often do I read it? Do I pick it up and actually read it and not just have it on the shelf? And over the years, it's been my privilege in working with Open Doors, first as a volunteer traveller and now as a, a speaker within North West Wales. It's been my privilege to meet some amazing people, some amazing Christians. And they've, they've been a real inspiration to me. They've, my whole Christian life wouldn't be what it is without them, without their input, without what I've learned through some of the people I've met. So what I want to do today, really, is to share some of their stories with you. I want to honour them, because they are standing strong in a situation that's very difficult. And as a church, I want us to stand with them, to support them in prayer, to help them however we can.
but most of all for them to know that they're not alone, that the church around the world, today especially, but across the year as well, is, is praying for them. I want to start by, by reading a Bible passage from Matthew. It's a bit that we know quite well, the, the Beatitudes, you know, the blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed, blessed, etc. I haven't time to read through it all, but please do, because so much of it does apply to the persecuted church, even before you get to the bit where I want to start, which is Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That you, you are the salt of the earth. We always think he's speaking to us, don't we? Which it is. But if you notice where it comes, there's a, a bit of an unhelpful paragraph change in my Bible. But he's saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted. You are the salt of the earth. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. You are the light of the world. Now, my instinctive reaction if I was persecuted would be to batten down the hatches, wait till it was all over, and then start witnessing, then start looking after people, then start following Jesus properly. But no, when we are persecuted, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And that's what we in Open Doors are seeking to do. We're trying to stand alongside people who have made that choice to stay where they are, in a dark place, to be a light, to be a witness. And they've made that brave decision. Sometimes, obviously, they're unable to leave. But some people have a real calling from God to stay in that difficult place of persecution, to be the witness that Jesus has called them to be. Can we have the next slide? These are the sources of a different persecution. I don't know if you've have you had the slide yet with the, the big number. 360 million. That one. 360, lots of zeros, million Christians around the world are being persecuted because of their faith. That's a huge number. When I started with Open Doors, it was, we estimated it was around about 100,000. This was when I first became a speaker in 2009. And it has gone up. It's gone up significantly. It's not that we're counting differently. We're using the same metrics. It's gone up for two main, two main reasons. One is China. China is now getting bad again, getting difficult. It went through a good patch, but it's, it's now embarking on what we're calling digital persecution. Surveillance cameras, that sort of thing. It's, it's very difficult for Christians to meet in secret, 
because the cameras have the face recognition, they can pick you up. Contacts on your mobile phone, how you access the internet, and so on. But also Africa, and especially Nigeria, which is what we'll be praying for. And I know there are people here from Nigeria, what we'll be praying for this evening especially. We estimate that there are more Christians killed for their faith in Nigeria than everywhere else in the world put together. We estimate that 14 Christians every day are losing their lives in Nigeria. Others are being kidnapped. Women are struggling, suffering attack. Churches are being specifically targeted. It's not just that the, the tribe or the community is known as a Christian tribe, although that happens, but pastors and churches are being specifically targeted. And it's moving south. And so that, that is on the increase. And overall, we think that one in seven Christians around the world are being persecuted for their faith. That's the bad news. The good news is that six in seven Christians around the world can stand by them and pray with them and encourage them and support them. So the sources, yes, where does this persecution come from? Obviously totalitarian governments, and we think immediately of North Korea, the Kim dynasty. North Korea is still the most dangerous country in the world to be a Christian because Kim Kim, Kim Jong-un now is God. His dynasty rules. It's a bit like the Roman emperor. You know, we have no God but Caesar. And anyone who thinks there's another God is a threat and is therefore persecuted. And in North Korea, they operate what they call the root and fruit policy. So that if you're a Christian and are therefore bad, your parents must have been bad because that's how you've been brought up. So your roots are bad. But also your fruit is bad because you've brought up your kids wrongly. And so three generations of Christians in North Korea are, can be arrested if one is found to be a Christian and put into a prison camp or a labor camp. We've talked a bit, of, I'll talk a bit more about North Korea later. Religious extremism is what we often think about, isn't it? Especially Muslim extremism in Africa and the Middle East. But there is also some persecution from from Buddhists and from Hindu, and especially as countries start to identify their country with their religion. And that's happening more and more in places like India, where the ruling party in India is, is really encouraging Indians to be good Hindus, because that means you're a good Indian. And therefore, the persecution of Muslims and the persecution of Christians is increasing. I've put there Christian Orthodox. There is some persecution, although it's getting better, from churches a bit like the Ethiopian Orthodox Church that see revival movements like in the Pentecostal or the Evangelical movement as a threat. And I know somebody who lost his job and had to leave the area because the Orthodox Church was persecuting him because of his newfound faith. But he says that's okay because God's working in the Orthodox Church as well. And he is. There is a, the people are becoming Christians through the Orthodox Church as well as through the other denominations. And finally, I've said there's social pressure. And that is, we all like to fit in, don't we? And if somebody from in our neighborhood is different, we sometimes feel a bit threatened. So imagine if, if you live in a, a good Muslim society and your neighbor converts to become a Christian, you feel you've been criticized somehow that your faith isn't good enough. 
and you take that to its extreme and that person has brought shame on the community or particularly shame on the family. So there is a great deal of persecution, sadly, comes from within the family. And Christian women especially can be divorced. They can lose access to their children if they convert to Christianity. So those are some of the sources. Can we move on? This is what we do. We support, as I said, open doors. We support persecuted Christians to be salt and light where they are and to stand strong through the storm. One of our training programs is called Standing Strong Through the Storm. And what we do practically is, on the next slide, we, we provide scriptures still. We still smuggle Bibles where we, we, where we need to. We provide training, training for pastors, training for Sunday school teachers. We provide life skills, places like Iraq, um, and other areas of the Middle East, and also in the Far East. Christians can't stay where they are if they can't earn a living. They can't be employed if they're Christians, because it's, they're not allowed to by the government in many places. So we try and give people life skills where they can learn literacy, hairdressing, and set up their own businesses. And we, we support them with microloans so that we give them the money to start up. And then when they've their business is succeeded and they do have to bring in a business plan and they give us the money back and then it then it goes on and I know a number of charities do that increasingly we've had to provide humanitarian relief um, again people can't stay where they are if they haven't got clean water if they haven't got food if they haven't got blankets that was never part of our core business until Iraq went badly wrong and and we had Christians fleeing with absolutely nothing and we very quickly had to put food packages and medicine and blankets together to enable the Christians just to stay where they were in Iraq. And trauma counselling is a biggie, increasingly. We train people in trauma counselling. We do a lot of work, again in the Middle East, supporting other groups like the Yazidis who've struggled. So we train people and we then send them out to support others and set up Largely women's group, but working also with children. Thanks. Okay. So, right, how can I help? Very quickly, I'm going to run through this and then get on to the stories. We can pray. That's the biggie. And when I say pray, persecuted Christians don't say, please pray for us. Because if you pray for us, you'll pray the wrong things. Pray with us. Pray with us that we will stay strong. Pray with us that we'll be able to continue to be the light. Pray with us that we'll be able to forgive. Pray with us that we'll be able to support our neighbours, whatever their faith. Pray with us. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our persecutors. Give. Obviously what we do does cost, although a little money goes a long way in some of these countries. Volunteer, spread the word. If you see a spare copy of these magazines on the seat, please take it with you and maybe give it to a neighbour. Write letters. We have um, letter-writing campaigns on the web. And speak out. We very often have on the website campaigns um, where we support, especially Christians in the Middle East now, and say, look... There is a Christian community in the Middle East. It's not just Shia Muslims and Sunni Muslims. It's a Christian country, 
That's the birthplace of Christianity. And the Christians have a right and want to speak out for how their society should be built. So what can I learn? And these are some of the things that I'm, I'm still learning. I've seen courage. I've seen faith. I've seen forgiveness. I've seen kindness. I've seen hope. I could fill a sheet of A4 and more with things that we can learn from our brothers and sisters. But I'm going to tell some stories now about some, some of the countries that we can talk about. But if you want more stories, please use that little card on your seat and we'll send you, every two months, we'll send you a magazine and a prayer diary. And each magazine has got some stories in about people's history. I brought a couple of spare copies of the January one because that speaks about North Korea. Um, and the one for September spoke a lot about China and digital, digital um, persecution. So North Korea is a beautiful country. It's not able to feed its people because South Korea's got the best agricultural land. But North Korea is a beautiful country. Its government obviously doesn't help. The sanctions don't help. But to be a Christian there is very difficult. We estimate there are about 400,000 Christians in North Korea. 75,000 of those are in prison camps. But they still meet together. They'll meet in the toilets because the guards don't go into the toilets because they're too smelly. So that's where they have their prayer, prayer times together in the, in the toilets. And they volunteer to clean them out so that they can go there to pray. There's a lot more I could say about North Korea. For me, my prayer, regardless of what they say, is, Lord, how long? Lord, how long? But their prayer is like Esther's prayer for such a time as this. They believe God's put them there. God is refining them, purifying them, so that they will rise up like the Jews, like Esther, to be a light to the nations. Because that's what God's called us to be. He called the Jews to be a light to the nations. He's calling us to be a light to the nations. And the Koreans want that. They say together with the Chinese and the South Koreans, they will be a light to the nations. The next one. Bhutan. This guy is, is a, he's a star. We call him HB. He's the only trained pastor in Bhutan. But he says, you don't need training. Three qualifications to be a pastor. Listening, Joel. Got to be prepared to die any day. You've got to share your home. And you've got to help the poor and the needy. And that's his bottom line. And I met pastors there who, who can't read but they've been Christians long enough to know how to support the poor and the needy. And that's what they do. And HB and his family, they, they go to India, they buy stuff. And they walk around or they drive around or they go around on bikes. And they give it to the Christians in the villages who have been cut off from the local electricity supply or cut off from the local shops because they're Christians, because they're different. So the verse that comes to me when I think of him is, do not be weary in well-doing because they, they cover the miles in some very remote territory. And they seek out people who are not well, people they need to visit, people they want to fellowship with. And the next one. Uh, we missed one? Yeah, that's right. Bangladesh. Bangladesh, as you know, very much a Muslim country. The guy in pink there is a, 
a Muslim background believer, an MBB as we call them for short. Um, he converted from Islam. He was the first in his village to convert and he could read. So he's the pastor and he gets the Christians together and teaches them. And what we do in Bangladesh, uh, amongst other things, is we, we have a training set up where young men like him, I shan't give you his name, from, from the villages can come in and can be taught, can be given training because they are basically doing a teach-it-yourself Christianity with the Holy Spirit guiding. But we give them Bible instruction and, and Christian discipleship training and standing strong through the storm training because this guy and people like him, was, he was ambushed in his own home by angry mobs that were just throwing stones and sticks and hurling abuse at him for three days. The police did nothing about it. He eventually escaped, made it to the police station, and he narrowly escaped being arrested himself for causing him trouble. So it's a very lonely existence and a very dangerous existence for some of these guys in, a, in extreme Muslim environments. Next one. This is a story that I've, I promised to myself when I first met this little boy on the back of the bike that I would tell his story wherever I spoke about open doors. His name is Philip, Pipe, Philip, and he's, he lives in Colombia. And his dad was an evangelist. I say was because sadly Pipe lost his dad just about a fortnight before I met him. He'd been killed because he was too good an evangelist. And he was taking soldiers from the drug cartel groups. They were being converted and joining his church. He was standing up against the cartels. He was standing up against drugs trafficking. He was standing up against taking children to be soldiers. And so they eliminated him. Now, Pipe is a Christian. And he knows he has to forgive. But boy, that was not easy. The culture there is to kill the person who's killed your relative. There was that pressure on him. But as a Christian, he knew Jesus told him to forgive. And that's not the sort of dilemma that you should put a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old should go through. He's been looked after there by one of the pastors in a nearby village. He took it, taking him for a ride on his bike. We run a school in Colombia for kids like Philip who've either lost parents or who can't live with their parents because it's too dangerous. Um, and that's something we've supported for a long time. It's one of our major projects. What we're also starting to do now, especially in Africa, is set up what we call bridge schools. For many kids, it's too dangerous for the kids to go to school because they're discriminated against and the other kids bully them and the teachers don't give them the right grades. So we're helping pastors set up their own schools, which are not... Christian faith schools, but they are good standard literacy educational schools. And what we're seeing happening is that the, the Muslim families that used to throw stones and sticks and bully these kids are now saying, can we send our kids to your school? Because it's a good standard of education. And it's a bridge with the community. It's building a bridge. It's being a light. It's sharing God's light with your neighbours We move on. I think there's one more. No, there's two more. Syria. This guy is one of our main contacts in Syria. 
Pastor Edward and his wife Rana. Edward was a dentist by trade and he worked in Saudi and then he felt in the late 90s that God was calling him to be a minister. So he went to the States and trained and then he felt God was calling him back to Syria. So he went to Damascus um, in 2003 and as the civil war broke out, he stayed there pastoring the church. He's one of our main contacts. We were delivering food um, humanitarian assistance, blankets, medicines, and he was distributing these through his church to whoever needed. We distribute always to whoever is in need, not just to the Christian community. It enables them to reach out. And in Syria, the walls came down, and people suddenly realized, well, the walls came down literally, as well as metaphorically, because people realized who Jesus was. And they said, why are you helping us? You know, We've ignored you. If anything, we've persecuted you for years, and now you're helping us. And the church in Syria, the number of Christians in Syria has gone down. So many have fled. But the church is now growing, and it's a very different-looking church than it was. Because the church before used to meet and worship and pray and then go home. The church now is active in society, and it's made up increasingly of people who've converted to Christianity from a Muslim background, potentially, usually. And we're providing training for people, for Muslim people who want to become Christian pastors. So the whole look of the church in the Middle East is changing. And it's exciting because God is building his church, but it took a civil war to bring that about. And finally, I mentioned Iraq briefly before. This guy is Daniel. He was then Brother Daniel. I met him in 2015, just after the Christians had been forced to flee from the Nineveh Plains from Mosul. And Nineveh, yes, was the, the real, one of the Christian homelands. But when ISIS moved in in 2014, they said, Christians, you have three choices. You can either convert to Islam, or you can be killed, or you must go, and you must go now. And so there was this mass exodus of Christians from Mosul. And they all ended up in Daniel's area in Kurdistan. And he'd already had to flee from Baghdad because of threats to him as a Christian. So what he did was open up the church car park to tents, people with sleeping bags. Gradually, we helped him build that up to porter cabins, with a safe play area in the middle for the kids. And he realized that we could, we're at risk of losing a generation here. And he set up a school. And again, we helped him with teachers, with equipment, computers, musical instruments. He got the most amazing school there. They are now heading back to Mosul because they kept hope alive. I must confess, I felt it's the most hopeless I've ever felt was when I went to Iraq. I couldn't see how they'd ever get back. But they're back. They're rebuilding their churches. The people I met as kids are now engineers. They're building carpenters they're rebuilding their houses Daniel is now Bishop Daniel <laughs> and he, he looks so uncomfortable when he puts his robes on it's ever so funny but he's much more much happier in a sweatshirt and a pair of jeans just playing with the kids but the, the church in Iraq has got the most pastoral heart that I've ever come across they just care for their whole communities and it was just so humbling to see Daniel and others like him looking after their communities during such a time of trouble. So 
I will stop the stories there because I'm running out of time and I would like us to spend a few minutes at least in prayer, in, in open prayer, if that's okay, Joel. And as a postscript to all that, there is this one picture that I want to leave with you. Brother Andrew's founding verse was awake and strengthen what remains. And I listen to the news now and I look at Gaza and I think there is a church in Gaza. You know, we're talking about Israelis and Palestinians killing each other. There is a church. There are Palestinian Christians. Now we reckon there's only about 900 to 1,000 Christians there, but they are there and they are feeling abandoned. They feel that the whole church is siding with Israel because that's what the church does. But these are our brothers and sisters. They're meeting in churches. They're hiding in churches. A bomb has landed very close to the Greek Orthodox Church where they were hiding. They are feeling in peril. They're feeling abandoned, and they've asked us to pray. But God is bringing the churches together in that region, the Greek Orthodox, the Anglican, the Evangelical, right across that part of the world they're coming together and when we come together as Christians God will work and my prayer is that not just the Palestinian churches but the Messianic Jews the the Christians who have come to Christianity through the Judean faith will also reach out to their Palestinian brothers and sisters because that's why we need a Christian witness in the Holy Land because if we keep going revenge 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 nothing's going to change but when Jesus said, a new command I give you, that you love your enemy, that's when things will change. So, so can we pray for some of these people, ones they represent, just briefly, as, an, as, sort of, as you feel, if anything's touched your heart, please bring it before God. Thank you.